This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> it's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh, and with me, as always, is the host, John Chalkowski. Hello. Today, we're going to talk about some, uh, you know, with all the floods in the news and natural disasters, one has to think about things that have happened in Pittsburgh's past and how we can learn from them or, um, you know, what they did to survive and how they survived it. Uh, to look forward to things that might happen in the future and how we might survive that. Yeah, 2018 was considered the wettest year in Pittsburgh history, and 2019 is... On track to be the same, yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, you know, with all throughout the Midwest, especially with all their flooding, and, and you know, really puts a lot of these stories in perspective and just how dangerous the waters can be. You know, we, we grew up here in Pittsburgh uh, surrounded by those three rivers, uh, the city, and they look pretty. They look nice, but they have been a threat to our city multiple times in the past. So there, there's many floods that we could talk about. We're going to talk about two specific floods today, and we're going to read some uh, direct things that were mentioned in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette at the time uh, by firsthand accounts of some of the events that occurred during these floods. The The flood of 1936 always uh, was one that's not old enough that people don't forget it. So in other words... Uh, my grandmother, you know, told me stories about the Pittsburgh flood, and um, you know anybody who was up in their upper eighties or nineties could, you know, recognize. Especially when, even when we were kids, would talk about these stories about the the great St. Patrick's Day flood of nineteen thirty six. So, I had a personal connection to it, which is where my uh, on my Italian side of the family, my great grandmother, uh, her name was Adeline Donatelli Donato, and she worked. Uh, so my great grandfather, Morgiano Di Donato, was his name. Uh, was a stonemason and made gravestones and things like that all over Pittsburgh. It'd be interesting to find out which ones he actually made because, to this day, I don't really know. I don't even know if he made his own or the one for his wife. But the story ended tragically with them when uh, his office happened to be on Penn Avenue downtown during the flood. And uh, of course, just like everything else downtown, it was flooded, and all the records and everything like that were getting you know covered in water and it was just bad news and my great-grandmother apparently went down there to help save some of these records and uh and files or whatever they could get out of there that weren't completely destroyed and she became sick from the floodwaters was one of the people that passed away due to the flood of 1936 wow she was 32 years old all right um five kids including my grandfather and uh the youngest but my grandfather i believe was only five so you've been nine years old or ten years old when this happened, but uh, it was a uh, yeah a tragic event that uh, touched many lives here in Pittsburgh, including my own. 
And uh, this is uh, a story that was written by uh, another great Pittsburgh writer and historian who's still with us today is Len Barkowski. And uh, he's with the Post-Gazette for years. And he has a great column called The Eyewitness to History. And he even wrote this book called Forbidden History of Pittsburgh. And uh, it was great. You know, I, I met up with him and, and uh, we share a very similar uh, mentality, you know, when it comes to uh, looking at unusual stories of Pittsburgh's past. And the flood of 1936 was no different. And uh, he wrote this um, really great little article uh, that talks about a firsthand account of the devastation, the destruction of the flood of 36. We're going to get right into it. So uh, this is coming from his book, The Forbidden History of Pittsburgh. And, and we're going to read through it a little bit and uh, tell you about exactly what he said, because it's uh, it's some it's a great interview that he found with this one woman, uh, which we're going to recall here. And it says, this natural disaster became known as the Great St. Patrick's Day Flood of 1936. Uh, this was called that, by the way, all over the Mid-Atlantic and Eastern Continental Divide. Okay, It was all called the Great St. Patrick's Day Flood because it didn't just hit Pittsburgh. It hit all over. In fact, uh, the newsreel footage, if you go back and look at it, which you can find on YouTube now, uh, people in Johnstown were flipping out. I mean, they had no idea what was going to happen. They are, they did build another wall, you know, another uh, dam, uh, and there were threats that it might explode just like the last one in 1889, um, which, of course, killed over 2,000 people in Johnstown. Uh, they were worried the same. So the, the newsreels, like, it looks like footage from a Godzilla movie, <laughs> like people running as fast as they can with just like a bag in your hand to get out of the way because this is serious business we're talking about here. And uh, Len, while writing the book, interviewed this woman named Mabel Sage, okay? And she remembers watching uh, garages and other small buildings floating underneath the West End Bridge in March that morning of 1936. Another woman uh, recalled that the police stopped her near Smithville Street and Fifth Avenue, and the streets of Pittsburgh's Golden Triangle were filling with water. Officers told her that she had no classes that day in school, and that Pittsburgh Academy, with the University of Pittsburgh later, the business school she attended on Wood Street was canceled. Uh, both women had seen the high watermark in Pittsburgh before. Neither, though, have realized that getting a firsthand look at the worst flood in the city's history would soon come. Pittsburgh was not alone in getting hammered by the combination of rapidly melting snow and heavy rains. Towns were washed out from New England to Maryland. Locally, though, the melting snow and rain combined to send the Monongahela and Allegheny Rivers high above their banks on March 17th and 18th of 1936. The resulting flood submerged downtown streets and the lower floors of buildings in the area stretched all the way to Pittsburgh's Point and all the way to Grant Street. So the entire central business district, or the Golden Triangle, completely submerged underwater. The whole thing. Not just, you know, one street's left okay, you know, a couple streets, maybe it's just the banks that are overflowing, 2nd Avenue maybe or something, Boulevard of the Allies or, you know, Duquesne Way. Yeah, the bathtub section. Yeah. Like today. The whole city. <laughs> okay. Um, the raging rivers caused by this, the Allegheny and the, Mon and the Mon and the Ohio, killed more than 150 people throughout the tri-state region. And within the city limits, 45 would die. Uh, in an era without instant communication, most people were not even immediately aware that this was going on. That morning's edition of the Post-Gazette had nothing on the front page warning about any kind of potential flooding. Nobody seemed too worried about it, one woman said. She was 93 years old when interviewed in 2011 and lived in Pittsburgh in Baldwin. That year marked the 75th anniversary of the flood. She recalled that 
we didn't have a radio and the young boys weren't selling any kind of special editions of newspapers. So I really did not know anything about this upcoming flood. When she left for work that morning from her home in Pittsburgh's Elliott neighborhood, she saw the parts of West Carson Street were well underwater by then. To her, it was just meant that she could not hop on a streetcar. Instead, she hoofed it across the West End Bridge to the north side. When police forbade her from crossing the Allegheny River on any side of the three sister bridges on 6th, 7th, or 9th streets, she realized that the condition must be much worse than she had previously thought. Undeterred, though, she finally managed to get across the river over to 16th Street. Mrs. Sage, one of the women, and Miss Kim, about age 21, worked as bookkeepers, stenographers, and sales clerk firm called the Electrical Enterprise Equipment Company on Smithfield Street. It was just a few doors away from what then was Gimbel's department store, which is now uh, Burlington Coat Factory. When she arrived at work, she and other employees spent the rest of the morning moving inventory records and office equipment to the second floor of the building. And by that time, the floodwaters have already filled the cellars of every business on Smithfield Street, approaching the first floor door sills. With electric power out now in the entire city of Pittsburgh and the threat of gas explosions from ruptured utility lines growing greater by the minute, police told her and the co-workers to leave. Realizing that she could not get home, she called her aunt, who lived in Morningwood Gardens in an upscale apartment complex in Oakland, and made arrangements to stay with her. The apartments are now part of the Carnegie Mellon University's dorm, and with the trolley system closed down, Miss Sage had to walk to Forbes Avenue in Oakland from downtown Pittsburgh. As she walked to her aunt's apartment, she realized that she hadn't eaten all day, so she stopped at a restaurant and recalled there being several eateries uh, around Pittsburgh before finishing her trek. Although... Some phones were working, and she was able to get a message to her mother telling her that she was all right. To the best of her recollection, it was a full week before she could go back down to work. Another woman, Mrs. Stanny, known then as Mrs. Simkus, was 18 years old in 1936, and she lived with her family on Forbes Avenue in Pittsburgh's Soho neighborhood. For her, the flood was mostly a few days of adventure combined with mostly minor inconveniences, she said. With the trolley system out of operation, she had to walk everywhere. And I think there was a shortage of milk and bread, too, she said. <laughs> her family, however, did not escape unscathed from the disaster's after effects. Her brother, Albert, suffered a serious eye injury from an explosion nearby in a business downtown. That accident happened while he was working with a crew restoring electrical service in Jones and Lachlan, uh, now demolished, which was on 2nd Avenue. Flooding had been a problem at the point where the Monongahela and Allegheny Rivers meet to form the Ohio since the very, very beginning. As far as people can Remember, since the you know, 1750s, people have been talking about floods at the point. In fact, in March of 1763, uh, the captain there, which was the commander of Fort Pitt, wrote a letter into which he described the high, high water mark and turned the military post into an island within inches of requiring to abandon it. That's how bad the floods would get down at the point. Spring snow melt and rains almost guaranteed that portions of the point would be underwater at least twice a year for most of Pittsburgh's history. Because you got to remember that the flood control was non-existent, you know, so uh, that didn't come to much, much later, which is actually has its origin and beginning with this particular flood, the flood of 1936. The lock and dam system that we currently have. That's right. That's right. Uh, in fact, um, city officials had understood that the dangers of flood in, uh, for decades. I mean, of course, they knew it was dangerous. But in April 1912, for example, the Pittsburgh Flood Commission, which was chaired by none other than H.J. Hines, had issued a 1,000-page report on the matter. The study recommended construction of a series of dams and reservoirs upstream to reduce the annual flooding. 
but it wasn't all the way till 1934 that U.S. House approved flood control measures for the Ohio Valley. However, the bill stalled in the Senate. So two years later. Classic government. Yeah. Two years later, the St. Patrick's Day flood was a direct result of this unpassed regulation. And uh, it was a near perfect storm, though, uh, that occurred here. And uh, snowfall had measured about 63 inches that winter. And well above the average, which was about 40, 45 inches of snow that we get here in Pittsburgh. Uh, after, though, it quickly melted due to high rains, and the Mon and the river and the Allegheny started flooding almost immediately. In 1936, 16 feet was the normal level of the river at that point. Uh, but by March 18th, the water had crested at 46 feet. Wow. So first story of on a high-rise downtown, to put it in perspective. In fact... You can walk around downtown. You'll still see some of those higher water marks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, it's much higher than we are. Even And that's in the middle of downtown. It's not at the edge of town, which was much worse. Um, largely in reaction to the Pittsburgh disaster, the, the Senate finally uh, acted to approve the Flood Control Act of 1936. Uh, Congress delayed funding, though, for another year. And downstream floods in the Ohio in January and March of 1937 reinforced the need for the project. The federal government ultimately financed construction of 16 reservoirs to help control water in the Ohio Valley. Those dams and reservoirs have proved their worth on multiple occasions. Floodwaters have flowed over the point in 1972 as a result of Hurricane Agnes measured 35 and a half feet. Without those reservoirs, the water level would have gone up 48 feet or two feet higher than the 36th flood, said the, the director of city planning. While the city never experienced another disaster quite like the St. Patrick's Day flood, the probability is low, uh, although it could happen again. There's no doubt that the reservoirs have reduced the frequency of flooding and reduced the height of flood crests, the engineer has said in 2011. However, he estimated that the flood control measures can reduce water levels by as much as four feet and that likely to be sustained problems over the years without any kind of control. The St. Patrick's Day flood provided stories of a lifetime and more in the retelling of the story, just like we're doing today. Uh, in fact, 1936, there was a student at the Swigley Academy, which is the private school over there in Swigley, which is about 14 miles down river from Pittsburgh, who says that in the morning of March 17th, classroom clocks stopped and the lights went out. And he recalled uh, a story that, that he couldn't leave class because the water was starting to reach up to the hillside where Swigley Academy is today and completely covered Ohio River Boulevard. So and that's pretty high. It is. It is. You know, and, and it's a once in a lifetime event for a lot of these people. And it's something that uh, most Pittsburgh figures, uh, most Pittsburghers will never, ever forget. I mean, uh, we have old timers that come to the historical society meetings in North Hills who were there. Remember it clear as day and uh, have those famous newspaper, art, you know, articles and famous headlines in the papers and photos. Of course, who hasn't seen a good photo of the flood of 1936? But. Well, I, f- I find it fascinating that there was that government in- intervention. There. Yeah, you know, the the fact that the government couldn't, um, you know, get the that legislation passed through Congress in time. <laughs> Two years earlier, you said. Yeah, they were well aware that there was a problem in Pittsburgh. And then, so it passed after the flood, yeah. and yet stalled a little bit and mm-hmm. caused more problems the, the next, next year. year. Yeah. So in 1972, it could have been two feet or four feet worse That's right. than the 36 flood, but thanks to our lock and dam system, 
it's been prevented, and that's why we haven't had a 1936 flood again. Is that's right? Thanks to yeah, we still have flooding. I mean, you can't yeah, avoid yeah. that, right? But you know, it's uh, could have been much, much worse. And not that it's not bad now when Gertie's mm-hmm. run floods, yeah, Millvale flood, um, you know, you know and, Carnegie, uh, you know, a decade or so ago, right? Um, I mean, it just uh, it shows the uh, it goes to show you that these um, you know, how important sometimes government involvement can be. Uh, when it comes to the safety of your entire town, um, this was a step that, you know, how else were you going to have it made? You needed to reach out. You needed the help uh, the, because it just cost so much money. Um, but back before all that could ever happen or back before any of those um, measures could have been taking place in early American history, there is one last story of a flood, which most Pittsburghers probably do not know. And, uh, you know, we talk about how everyone knows the photo 36 or everyone has seen a photo, but not many people have ever heard of the Butcher's Run flood of 1874. I've never heard of that. And not many other people have either. And it's why it's important that we talk about this. And it's important that you, uh, you hear these stories because this one is, while the, there was much destruction, you know, 40 something people killed in uh, the third flood of 36. It was nothing like this Butcher's Run flood of 1874. This is coming straight from the Post-Gazette as well, from 1874. And this was uh, Butcher's Run, first of all, okay, is today's Spring Garden Avenue, okay, in Northside. Uh, back then, it was Allegheny City, and it was called Butcher's Run. It wasn't called Spring, you know, Spring Garden Avenue. Uh, it was really because, like, up the top of Ravine Street, which we know today as uh, Rialto Street, or a.k.a. Pigs Hill, um, cattle and pigs and things like this were actually driven up that hill to the butcher shops on Long Spring Garden Avenue. Not in the meanwhile at the bottom of the river, um, on the island down there, there was a uh, another manufacturing plant. But that's where kind of like where the pigs and the cows were dropped off and processed. But everyone got you know shoved up the hill, Spring Garden Avenue butcheries came back down the hill. So um, that's where Butcher's Run was. Uh, if you go to a, a portion of Spring Garden Avenue, it's called O'Hara Street. Okay, it's still there today. And um, this was on July 26th, 1874. And it is one of the worst disasters uh, flooding in Pittsburgh history. A portion of Spring Garden Avenue was then known as O'Hara Street and was at the center of a densely packed portion of Allegheny City. The event that lured newsmen to the s- street began around 8 o'clock on Sunday evening, July 26th. Heavy raindrops splattered on wood plank roads as families settled down in their homes for the evening. The rain grew heavy, alarmingly so. Soon, it was a torrent like any with any witnessed in any recent memory. A thick darkness fell over the city. Newspapers called it impenetrable, except for the frequent blasts of lightning. Streams that flowed down the hills above O'Hara Street began to fill with water. On a hillside near one of those streams lived a man named G.W. Day. As he peered out a window, a lightning flash revealed an instant something terrifying. A wall of water was bearing down upon his house. Day had no time to react. Fortunately, the flood had yet to gather deadly force. Fed by water rushing down hillsides, the flood grew in strength and volume. Outbuildings and fences were swept away, trees uprooted, and road planks tossed into the air by fast-moving water. Those in the flood's path had little warning, if any at all. Homes were inundated, pushed from their foundations, overturned, or in some cases completely torn apart. Survivors groped for safety in the darkness. 
Remember, this is happening in the middle of the night, on Sunday night. In 1874. So there's not a lot of light out. No. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it was a a dangerous time to even just walk outside at night, let alone, uh, you know, hope and pray that everything would be okay when you were sleeping because uh, you didn't know if anyone was coming up the road or not. I mean, like that guy said, the only thing that he could witness because of lightning, he could see what was going on. But that was it. So in the pitch black of darkness, another man, right, named John Shearing and his wife carried their sleeping four-year-old sons, twins, out of the family's house and into the bank above the rushing waters. The storm aroused one of the boys who awoke, rolled over the bank into the raging flood, and never recovered. The Leopard family, with the three-story frame house who was destroyed. Mrs. Leopold, it was Leopold family, sorry. The Leopold family, whose three-story frame house was destroyed. Mrs. Leopold and her four children, all drowned. In addition, the flood killed five children from another family who were living on the third floor of the same house. The home of a cooper named Simon Dreyer was next. It was lifted up and set completely on its side. The family, though, escaped serious injury of that house. Another man, John Fisher, a butcher, ran to his stable to save his horse. And as the water rose, he saw safety in a hayloft, reaching down and grabbing his horse's bridle and holding, holding the animal's head above the water so it could tread water, thus saving its life. Elsewhere, a woman named Mrs. Upperman looked out her window and in a flash of lightning glimpsed two boys floating by her house. She called for help, but the boys were carried away within the darkness. O'Hara, Concord, and Chestnut Streets were all described by the newspapers as the bosom of destruction. Houses here were rudely pushed together one against one another. Some collapsed, and in these streets children were torn from the grasp of their parents and disappeared in the rolling waters, and their corpses of cows and pigs and sheep and pieces of furniture, broken carriages, light poles, and other debris along with it. Some of the most substantial brick dwellings were undetermined in full, reported the Post-Gazette. Frame houses were moved off their foundations, upset in some instances, where they refused to move, twisted into the most fantastical of all shapes. The receding water left a coating of mud, filth, and rubbish in the streets. Bruised and torn corpses littered the area. Many were damaged beyond recognition. A dead girl snarled in the branches of a peach tree. Harry Mattern died with his arms clasping two of his children. A few yards away, a dead wife clutched the other child. On Perry Street, searchers found the body of a policeman, Henry Hess, one hand clinging to a fire plug, the other hand grasping on a stick. Corpses were carted away to nearby funeral homes where they were cleaned and placed within rows. A boy approximately five years old wandered alone on Chestnut and Ohio Streets. He spoke only German. His name was Schubert, he said, and he was washed from a second-story warning, uh, window during his flood. He had not seen any member of his family since. A number of the ladies in the vicinity took him in charge, the press said. On Tuesday, church bells tolled, and the funeral processions passed through the streets. The cleanup and the healing had begun. In decades to come, a man named Hines would build a company and a fortune just a few blocks away. Allegheny City would be eventually become Pittsburgh. Modern railways would cut through the neighborhoods. O'Hara Street would become Spring Garden Avenue. And the flood of 1874 would remain only a memory and those who lived it. How about that? That's, in, that's unbelievable. Yeah. That's, um, so much devastation, destruction, and death, it's hard to not, when you hear it like that, mm-hmm. be emotionally affected by it. Right. And this is something that is not known. And like I, yeah. 
And and I know I've said this many times on the podcast, but how important it is to learn these things. Yeah, I mean, no, I've never met anybody, and I could say it honestly, I've never met anybody who's told me about the 1874 flood. Nobody. Now, I one hand, you know, only from people who've also discovered the story or uh, photos of the devastation and what it looked like do exist. The Library of Congress has those on a uh, stereograph cards. So you can actually Google Butcher's Run Flood Pittsburgh and you'll find actual photos of what it looked like, um, which is early photography. I mean, 1874, you're talking about early photographs of Pittsburgh just in general. And it's just kind of a shame that the earliest photographs of Pittsburgh happen to be of this devastation. But it's one way for us to never forget. Is is there a count on how many people lost their lives? It's unknown. That's how bad it was. Uh, they, they rumored it was close to 100 people. Uh, were either killed or disappeared and never to be seen again or were badly wounded and damaged. I mean, and you're talking about just three streets kind of in that whole area, the Spring Garden Avenue area, north side today, which is where the Heinz factory is still to this day, where, you know, where they used to be. Yeah, the Heinz lofts. Right, the Heinz, the Heinz lofts, and along with many other businesses and churches and homes. And, and you could only imagine just like suddenly, quickness of night, you know, no warning whatsoever. A wall of water coming down your street. Especially only seeing it due to the lightning. No, no power, yeah. That is, yeah, it's scary. Can you, it's terrifying. Yeah, it's very. And uh, to hear these descriptions of people being like yanked from their arms and like a tsunami or something, you know, like you hear, you see the footage or see the stories, but to hear that it happens in your own hometown and that you didn't even know that it happened is kind of, a, it makes it even worse, really, in my opinion. That uh, it's one thing that, you know, the stories from the flood of 36 are slowly starting to, you know, go away from our memories. But this one, which already has, is um, I always feel important in telling that story because it is one of those ones that, like we say, like you you need to talk about it otherwise good or bad uh, because otherwise it's as if it never happened in the first place. Well, I guess the one advantage the 36 flood has is it was on St. Patrick's Day, so there will always be that. That's right. That's right. And the invention of, you know, cameras and and, uh, video footage of it, and it was world news, where this didn't really become like, you know, world news. I mean, it was devastation and horrible, but like, uh, you will find this mentioned in other cities' newspapers. However, it, uh, there's so much, so many things happening in that time period, it just kind of, goes under the radar even back then. And I know I've said this over and over again on this podcast so far, but just imagine if that had happened today with the social media and the 24-7 news coverage, Mm -hmm. that would dominate the broadcasts. Yeah, almost all the stories that we talk about on here would do the same thing. These are things that are so epic in scale and so big news that it's almost unbelievable that they've just gone lost the time. Yeah, I mean, you just picture CNN, Fox News, CNBC, they act MSNBC. When, you know, four people go missing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, five but, people. So this is hundred? this yeah. is a hundred people in a flood. Mm-hmm. As it's happening in real time, you you have the local cameras on there. Mm-hmm. It's going to be worldwide news. Yeah, at that and, time. and the relief effort. You know, I mean, that, that's one thing. Like the flood of thirty six, it was so bad that uh, people all over the world started just like the fire of eighteen forty five would contribute to the cause of rebuilding the city or you know, clean up and food supplies and all that kind of thing. But for these, you know, people predominantly German, you know, living on the north side, 
in Allegheny City. It's um, right in Deutschtown. I mean, that's... It, it's, it is Deutschtown. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the whole thing becoming, you know, basically almost wiped away. If you do do yourself a favor and find those photos because it is uh, amazing to see what it looked like. I mean, it's crazy. Like uh, the house is literally on their sides just from the pow- powerful the storm was. And uh, it's incredible to think that without talking about it as, as if it never happened. And um, there's stories like this that we could keep on going. We'll probably do another episode of just disasters in Pittsburgh's history, like tornadoes, earthquakes. We've had multiple earthquakes here in Pittsburgh. Not enough to cause serious damage, but we did have them. Tornadoes, though. Uh, and there are other floods. There's not much known about this one flood, but I like to mention it. The Great Pumpkin Flood of 1810. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I don't know what it's about. That sounds a little bit more delightful than the it's ones that you're talking more about. But yes. I doubt it was. Yeah, I doubt it was. We will explore that and many other tales on a future episode. But for now, that's it for Pitt.